Divorce Detox features raw, unfiltered conversations with divorce coach Lisa Happ and family law attorney Jolie Vackey. Learn how to cope, heal, and thrive while navigating the inherently flawed family court system. Enjoy candid conversations with the hosts and their expert guests as they discuss the dirty details about divorce and co-parenting. It's time for Divorce Detox. Hello, welcome to Divorce Detox, where we dish all about the dirty details of divorce and co-parenting and how to cope, heal, and thrive while navigating the inherently flawed family court system and separating from your ex. We are your hosts, certified divorce coach Lisa Happ of Lisa Happ Coaching and family law attorney Jolie Vackey, the founding attorney of Foundations Family Law and Mediation Center. This is episode number 24 of the Divorce Detox Podcast, and Lisa and I are so happy to welcome a guest to today's episode. Her name is Jennifer Hawthorne Kelsey, and she's the partner at Skylark Law and Mediation, and that's in Southborough, Massachusetts. And she's a mediator and collaborative divorce attorney, and we're so excited to have her on today to talk about some alternatives to litigation, because a lot of times we're talking about the bloodbaths and all the horror stories, but it doesn't always have to be that way. So welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Jolie and Lisa, for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So it would be great if you could kind of introduce yourself to our audience and just give them a little bit about your background and what led you to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Jolie. So as Jolie mentioned, I am a collaborative attorney and a mediator. And so if you're listening and you have no idea what those things mean, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later in this podcast. Um, but how did I get here to doing this kind of work? Since it is a little bit out of the ordinary for an attorney to say they don't go to court, which is what I always tell my clients. And honestly, my path here was a bit accidental. Um, I went to law school after I'd already worked in financial services for about seven years. And I just knew that that was not my calling in life and that it wasn't putting any sort of good out into the world. And so when I went to law school, my goal was to start doing um, plaintiff side discrimination work, particularly around gender and race. Um, so nothing like what I'm actually doing right now, um, which is why I say it was really accidental. Um, when I went to law school, it was 2007 to 2010. So anyone listening that has an idea of what the work, um, the workforce job finding ability was at that point in time knows it was pretty slim. So I took an alternate path in general to starting my practice. And I ended up starting my family before I actually started practicing law and took the bar like when I had an infant and things like that. Um, because I was assured that most people in my graduating class wouldn't have actual legal jobs right after graduating. And so just given my circumstances, it made sense. Um, so I spent the first couple of years after law school, mostly home with my first two kids. And then my first husband lost his job and we ended up having to like, it, it felt really uncomfortable. So I thought, okay, I have to do something, decided to start my own practice. And during law school, I had worked with a small firm who did some estate planning and some family law work. And both of those were interesting enough to me that I thought, okay, I can do this. 
And it's an area of the law where I think with proper mentorship and and really a lot of professional development, you can go out as a solo and actually practice that. It's not something where I felt like I was really going to make huge, huge mistakes right away if I tried to do it on my own. So I started my own firm and I started networking everywhere I could. And I met an attorney named Layla Wands, who is still a really good friend of mine. And she's a a divorce attorney in the Worcester area. Um, And she was presenting on collaborative law, which I had never heard of before. And she was talking about how when she learned about that type of practice, she had her own aha moment and said, like, this feels like the right fit for me. And as I was listening to her, I realized like, oh, there is a different way to do this. I had been studying and trying to learn how to litigate, right? And that sort of led me back to that feeling of like, I don't feel like I'm putting enough good out into the world. And I didn't want to accidentally find myself back in the the place for my own mental health where I was when I was doing financial services, where I just didn't want to spend my life doing something that didn't feel like it had a good outcome for anybody. Um, So I joined the uh, Mass Council of the Mass Collaborative Law Council, MCLC. I always mess up that acronym. Um, I joined the Mass Council on Family Mediators, MCFM, and I took a mediation and collaborative law training all that year. And sitting in the mediation training especially, I definitely had my own like, wow, this is my right fit. This feels exactly right. And at a very small level, not the big macro level I was hoping to have impact on in the world, but on a micro level for individual families, I feel like now doing this work, I can actually help people improve their communication even as their marriage is breaking down. I can help them really transition their relationship from married partners to co-parents, change how they're interacting, and hopefully that helps lead them down a path that ends up with a much better result for their children. And so that's kind of how I got here. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You're I so hear people's stories. And I love how you just kept following the flow and following your intuition. And it led you to sounds like where you were absolutely meant to be. And yeah. I love what I you said so about helping people improve their communication when the relationship's breaking down for the benefit of their kids. Because, at least in my opinion, most people, in general, not even in divorce. Most people just don't really know how to communicate. I mean, that's definitely true. And I know for myself personally, this path career-wise has changed the way I try to, try to, and I'm definitely not perfect at it, try to change how I communicate with other people and how I deal with conflict in my own personal life too. Like I said, I'm by no means perfect at it. If you ask my kids, they would say, no, she doesn't. (laughs) She doesn't do that well. Well, nobody's perfect. And our kids are always our biggest critics, right? Absolutely. I think you're amazing at it. I just met you, but I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. Mm -hmm. So, So, Karen, um, how about you tell us a little bit about, I think, you know, people have an idea of what mediation might be, but can you really break it down for us and tell them, like, how the process works? What does that look like? um, And what people might be a good fit for mediation. Absolutely. So in general, the way that I think of process choices for folks who are mainly getting divorced, but this same 
process spectrum can be used for folks who are, you know, modifying after a divorce or for a prenuptial agreement before people are married or for unmarried parents. Like there's lots of families that fit into this, but it, it's sort of a spectrum where I say at one end is something called the kitchen table. And at the other end is a trial with a judge. So at some point, at least in Massachusetts, the way that it works is you cross over from an uncontested divorce to a contested divorce or working out of court to using the court process to resolve your conflict. And so when I say kitchen table, I mean people sitting down and like just talking amongst themselves. And you two both are probably well aware that that oftentimes doesn't work because people either don't know what they don't know or they hit an impasse that just makes it impossible to actually keep working just alone together. So you take a step over on my spectrum of process choice, and that's where you hit mediation. So mediation is a process that by design has whoever is involved in the conflict, usually in my world, it's two people, sitting down with a neutral facilitator um, or an impartial facilitator. There's lots of conversation in the mediation world about which one is appropriate to, to call that person. But it's someone that's sitting there, and the way I describe it is helping you have that conversation. So when I'm meeting with my mediation clients, I'm just another person in the room who is listening to both of them. I'm helping them to identify their needs, interests, and goals. And even if they're really clear on what they're trying to accomplish in, in getting divorced or whatever conflict that they're in, oftentimes the other person sitting in the room with them, their spouse, their partner isn't hearing them the same way they're intending for them to. So it's my job to listen to what they're saying and to help them hear each other. So at the same time, I'm gathering information. I'm helping them to clarify for, e for each party what's actually being said to them because people get caught up in communication patterns that just persist like as they're trying to get out of them. And it makes it impossible for, as human beings, for our, our rational brains to hear something in the same way over and over again and interpret it differently. So part of my job as a mediator is to help make that clarification for them. Like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Here's what I'm hearing. Like, tell me where, where that stands. Um, as I'm going through this with them, it's my job to give them lots of legal information, which means explaining like, how does child support work? How does property division work? That includes saying, you know, what did, what did judges do? What have other clients in like situations done? What do I have ideas? What do they have ideas about? And we're really brainstorming lots of different options to try to find a solution that meets both of their needs, interests, and goals as much as possible. It's not going to be 100%. But my main messaging to my clients is that my goal for a successful mediation is if they come to an agreement that at the end of the day, they can say this is practical because it's based on our real life and our real finances. We both understand it and we both think it's livable. So a practical livable agreement, which doesn't mean that it looks exactly like either one of them, I, actually it almost never does, look exactly like what either one of them thought it was going to look like when they started the process. But because they're transforming how they're thinking about things by gaining information and gaining knowledge about really what the other person's needs, interests, and goals are, and of course, centering if they have children, what are the children's needs, interests, and goals, in mediation, you can build, and, and really, honestly, in any of these out-of-court process choices, you can build an agreement that really takes into consideration all of the things that matter 
once you're living your post-divorce life? Like what is everyone's work schedule? What is the children's extracurricular schedules? Really financially, is there a way to make it work, whether it exactly matches the child support guidelines or not, that both people can have, you know, net positive income in their house, mm-hmm. that the children are living that actual, like an actual similar lifestyle in both houses. Mm-hmm. All of those things that the court aspires to do, but doesn't always get there. Um, so the other really important things about mediation, it's a voluntary which means that if people try it and it doesn't work, what they have given up in terms of um, benefits that they might have had otherwise are they've given up a little bit of money. Sometimes they feel like it's a lot and that's totally understandable, but whatever fees they paid to the mediator and whatever time they spent on mediation, because sometimes, especially when you're stuck in a crisis, time passing and not actually feeling like you're making forward progress can feel like a big give. So I totally acknowledge that that's the the drawback to trying one of these processes, but it is completely voluntary and it's confidential, which does not mean that folks going through mediation can't talk to anybody else other than their spouse or the mediator about what's happening in mediation. If folks have legal opinion questions, meaning like, is this a good deal for me? Could I get better if I went to court? How should I argue this if I would get, like, how could I get the most out of this situation from a judge in court, those are not questions for a mediator. Those are questions for an attorney. So I always encourage my clients to have attorneys on the side if they have those sorts of questions. And then I also always encourage my divorcing clients, especially, um, to have some sort of emotional support because no matter what, no matter if you're the one who asked for the divorce or you're just finding out your spouse wants a divorce or you're both actually thinking it's the best way forward for your family. There's loss involved with divorce. And so you need an emotional support network, whether it's friends and family or a divorce coach like Lisa or a therapist, or I always say all of the above. It's okay if you need all of the above, but have that emotional support network. So that's like, basically that's mediation in a nutshell. There's a bit more that I sometimes share with clients, um, and it still doesn't really paint the picture of what you were asking, Jolie, about what actually does it feel like to be in mediation or what do people experience? And I think in part, that's because people experience all different things in mediation. You know, some people try it and it's not a great fit. Other people actually, there's, you know, magic in the room and that transformation happens and They come in in a place where they can barely talk to each other and they leave the process, which is usually sometime between three and six months is about how long people are in the mediation process um, with like three to four mediation sessions for most folks um, who have children and like some property, like real estate, retirement accounts, things like that to get through all of the things we need to get through. Um, But sometimes they leave completely transformed and just clearly on their way to being great co-parents, which is my favorite. Um, So you also asked who would be not a good fit for mediation, right? Or who is a good fit? Well, who's a good, yeah. Who is a good fit? And so who does that exclude? Like who should not maybe be looking at this? So, so I have a broader definition of who could fit into mediation than many mediators do. Mm -hmm. And that's in part, I think, because I've also mediated in court. And so I have had experiences working even with families with intimate partner violence and things like that, where 
most mediators on the private side would say like, okay, that's not a good fit. My personal opinion of who's a good fit for mediation is anyone who wants to try it, provided they're willing to be open and transparent about their own needs and understanding about the needs of their partner. Because for, for example, for families that have a history of intimate partner violence, that's really important for me as the mediator to know, because I wouldn't have everyone sitting in the same room with just me there. Like that mediation might look different, right? Like it's okay to have lawyers present at mediation. I never describe it that way in the first instance um, because that's not where I usually start, but I have done mediations that way. I have mediated at the courthouse to make sure that there's security there too, if needed. Um, you know, lots of different considerations. So who do I think should be excluded just off the bat is almost no one. Um, who do I think ends up being the best fit? It's, it's folks who are in that place where they are ready to make progress and they accept, not that they want the divorce, but that they accept that it's going to happen mm -hmm. and that they're willing to be completely transparent with their spouse across the board as best as possible, but certainly about their financial statements. Mm -hmm. um, so we haven't talked about this on this podcast, but I'm guessing you guys have on many other episodes the need for making disclosures about your finances when you're in a in a legal situation anyway, involving family conflict. Um, and so the cases where people end up leaving are those cases where people really lack trust and can't find a way to get that trust in the process. Um, some of the ways we do that, again, is by having attorneys present and things like that if people express that need. Um, but if someone is really not willing to make a full disclosure and not willing to meet their spouse where they're at in terms of what documentation do they want to see, what questions do they need answered, that's probably not a case that's going to go through the whole mediation and have a great outcome. Divorce Detox is sponsored by Lisa Happ Coaching and Foundations Family Law and Mediation Center. Lisa Happ is a certified divorce, narcissistic abuse, grief, and life coach. She guides women in abusive, toxic, and narcissistic relationships through the divorce process and beyond to help transform and transmute their fear around their divorce and leaving a relationship to confidence and calmness. Together with Lisa, you can clear the fog and emotional chaos you're experiencing by setting boundaries, finding your voice, and reclaiming life and your power. No matter where you are in the process, she is here to support you every step of your way. You can find her at lisahap.com. Foundations Family Law and Mediation Center is a solutions-oriented boutique law firm based in Worcester County, Massachusetts. They represent clients and mediate divorces in both Massachusetts and Rhode Island. The philosophy of Foundations Family Law is to resolve family law conflicts as painlessly and peacefully as possible. They firmly believe that something beautiful can be made from something broken, and they will be with you every step of the way to build a solid foundation for the future you deserve, filled with freedom, stability, and peace of mind. If this resonates with you and what you are looking for in a family law attorney or mediator, be sure to check out Foundations Family Law online at foundation, foundationsfamilylaw.com.
Lisa is extremely generous and is offering a free coaching session for all new Foundations Family Law divorce clients. And the magic really happens for our clients when they choose to work with both of us through our Divorce Detox Signature Program. If you retain Foundations Family Law for your legal matter and purchase a coaching package with Lisa Hap Coaching, you will get a free bi-monthly call with both of us to ensure that your legal strategy and emotional healing are in alignment and helping you to reach your ultimate goals. You said so many great golden nuggets in there. Um, I was trying to keep up, but um, I love when you're talking about having the third, being the third party in the room, even, you know, the, the kitchen table scenario, because yeah. I, I mediate as well. And sometimes I feel like, both sides are saying the same thing, but different ways. Absolutely. And, and they think that they are in conflict, but as the outsider who's not emotionally involved, you can actually point out where the common ground is and yep. build off of that. It's just, it's so incredible just having that that neutral party being able to do that. Um, and then also uh, with the goal of, you know, providing legal information. Um, because sometimes you you said, you know, they don't know what they don't know. Sometimes, you know, people will come in and they, they're like, oh, we have a whole agreement. Like we just need it drafted. But then you say, well, what about this? This needs to be included in the separation agreement. And so you can point out those holes because if they had just gone to court and tried to get divorced, the judge would say, right. well, whoa, this isn't um, complete, you know, you got to go and come back. So um, not only do you help facilitate that agreement, but you also help facilitate an agreement that's going to be accepted and approved by the court so they can get Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I tell clients all the time, both in the making sure their agreement is inclusive enough and detailed enough and unambiguous enough, but also in so far as sometimes what people want to do would work really, really great for them, but falls so far outside of what the norm is in Massachusetts that if you do this work, you know, a judge has to find the agreement fair and reasonable. And so I also flag for them, you know, where is this agreement falling way outside what I think a judge is just going to easily say yes to? So we talk about if that's truly what they both believe is fair and reasonable, there's no harm in giving it a try and seeing if they, you know, get an accepting response from the judge. But let's talk about a backup plan, because oftentimes, as you know, there's different parts of the agreement that are dependent, like their trade-offs, right? And so if the judge says no to this one part, this other part is going to become questionable too. So having an overall backup plan is really important. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you. I love having the idea of having a backup plan. Yeah. I do think a lot of times women that I work with think if they agree, they're going to go in and it's going to be all set and it's going to be approved by the judge. Oh, for sure. Always I the all the time. Just like Jolie was just saying, like I get clients all the time who say we have a full agreement and it's, they have talked a lot at the kitchen table and I don't want to discredit that in any way, but it's usually about the things that are really important to them and missing all of the things that they had never, like that just weren't important that they had never thought of. Um, and people who think like, oh, well, a judge can't say no. And that's usually, I try to do that in every initial consult, like making sure people know judges can say no here. Because there's lots of jurisdictions actually um, where judges don't have the ability to say no. 
mm-hmm. and parties can contract to like whatever they want. Um, and that's not our situation here. Mm-hmm. So what is the difference between mediation and collaborative law? Because I think a lot of our listeners might not have even heard the term collaborative law. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Julie. Um, Most people who come into my office know a a little bit about mediation and nothing about the collaborative process. So the way that I describe the collaborative process on my spectrum, as I say, it's a second out-of-court process that has similar goals to mediation insofar as it's designed to help people get to that practical livable agreement. It's very focused on transparency, disclosure, and problem solving. Um, the big, huge difference in is that where mediation starts out, where if there are attorneys, they're usually on the side of the process and not directly involved in the conversations in the room. Collaborative is an inter- interdisciplinary team approach. And so at its core, every single collaborative case, and this is collaborative with a big C, which can be confusing to people because there's lots and lots of practitioners out there who say, I'm collaborative. And, and in for folks who do what I do, um, we distinguish between a capital C and a small C, um, with the capital C being this formal process. And in the formal process, there's a neutral still, who is a coach facilitator, who usually has a mental health background, um, who is there to make sure that folks are able to clearly identify the folks going through the process, their needs, interests, and goals, is helping to communicate that to the to the other two core professional team members who are both attorneys, an attorney for each, each side. Um, and I'll, I'll speak to the attorney role in a second more, more in detail, but the coach communicates to the attorneys that the party's needs, interests, and goals and make sure that the attorneys really understand what we should be focused on in the room. And then in the room, it, unlike the mediator who is suggesting topics and making sure everything is covered, the coach facilitator is much more focused on like a high level view of what's going on, making sure that that the clients themselves aren't straying too far from their needs, interests, and goals and sort of drawing attention to the fact that what they're asking for might not meet those goals. And The other thing the coach is really doing in the room is making sure that nobody is unintentionally or intentionally making the conversation harder or has something going on that's like in in consciously or unconsciously derailing the process. And that doesn't just mean the clients. The coach is also there to make sure that the attorneys aren't acting, for lack of a better way of saying it, too Mm -hmm. attorney-like. And so there's a training that all of the professionals go through that especially for attorneys, but also for people with a therapist um, or psychology background, it tries to talk you through this paradigm shift of switching from, for therapists, um, and a coach could do a much better job explaining this than I can, thinking about trying to heal people because that's not really the goal of the collaborative process. It's sometimes a byproduct, but not the actual goal. But for the attorneys, you're going through this paradigm shift of how you think about advocacy. Because in law school, we're taught that as an advocate, you have to get the best outcome for your client. And that is your sole mission and your sole drive. And what I think people, especially in practice areas like family law, can lose focus on 
when you're trying to get the best outcome for your client is that marriages end, families don't end. Even if the two parents no longer have anything to do with each other, there's kids in common, there's extended family in common. There's so many ongoing relationships that can be damaged by taking that view of advocacy and just shooting for whatever you think is the best position for your clients. And I think a lot of attorneys don't actually know what's best for their clients. We all think like, oh, it's the most money. It's the biggest settlement, right? But maybe that's not what's best for your client if we sit back and say, okay, tell me your needs, interests, and goals. And then let's talk about how your actual family circumstances fit into those, what's likely to happen. And if one of your goals is remaining, having a positive co-parenting relationship, that's not going to happen if you're driving for the only the best financial outcome for yourself, most likely. And so the collaborative process uses this team approach to help people get there. And people listening might be thinking, yeah, but they're still attorneys. So how do you keep that attorney thinking like really out of the process? And in the same way that confidentiality in mediation creates this space to have this interest-based conversation, there's a process agreement in the collaborative process that all of the professionals and all of the clients sign that says in part, and this is the really important part for attorneys, that those particular attorneys will never represent those clients in court in a contested matter. So those attorneys might go to court to help enter an agreement now and in the future if a modification is needed, but they're never going to file a complaint for divorce where they're entering an appearance. Um, if there already was a complaint for divorce filed with an appearance, usually there's some, like that person usually withdraws if they want to be the attorney in the collaborative process. And the clients know like, okay, nothing we say here, these attorneys are here to help us get to this agreement. They are not here to make a case for the judge. And they're not trying to gather facts to make a case for the judge. And then the a, a second real big difference for mediation is that because you have a team, as a mediator, I do this on my own, but I don't have people to bounce it off against is, you know, they pre-brief and debrief, the, the team does. And so they're thinking about in the pre-briefs, what should our agenda be for the next meeting? What's happened between the last meeting and this meeting that anyone knows of that might make this next meeting more challenging? What are the needs of our clients immediately? What are the What's the information we need to make this a productive meeting? Let's make sure we're all set before we step into the room with the clients. And then after the meetings, the each professional debriefs with their respective clients, so the coach with both parties and the attorneys with their respective client. But the professionals also debrief that meeting and talk about, okay, how did it go? Where did we make missteps? Could we have done this differently? How can we prepare better for the next meeting? And really, how can we get these clients through this process in a way that gets them again to that practical, livable agreement? Mm -hmm. And I think that description like paints a certain picture, but it is one of those experiences in life. I think the collaborative process that until you've experienced it, it's really hard to actually visualize. It's like an extra supportive layer to the mediation process. Right. And it's so, I love how different it is. And it's just so out of the, out of the box. And, but just as an attorney myself, in a collaborative environment, not being so focused on getting the best outcome for your, your client, but getting everyone's has the common goal of getting the best outcome for the family. That just feels right. 
so good. And I mean, as an attorney in a collaborative process, you're, you can give your, your, advising your client, you can give them legal information, but you know, it's not just about winning. It's about the everyone working together. Absolutely. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. on it, I, you can get more information to help your client figure out their best outcome than you ordinarily can. Um, I know if I'm in a lawyer to lawyer negotiation and it's the type of lawyer to lawyer negotiation where I never talk to the other party, and I'm never in the same room as them. I'm hearing just my client's side and the attorney, the other attorney's version of what that other person's needs, interests, and goals, and really what's motivating them, why they're asking for the things that they're asking for. And I don't have full information. Mm-hmm. When I'm able to sit in the same room as the other client as well, I get so much more information so that I can go back to my client and say, okay, I understand now why your spouse wants this. Let's talk about this one way they're asking for it is not acceptable to you. Let's sit and brainstorm together other options that might be more palatable and acceptable to you that you could actually live with. But if I didn't have that information in the first place, I'm operating in the dark in a way. Yeah. You find out their motivations for it. Right. And that's so helpful in the whole process. Right. So, um, I mean, these processes keeping, you know, yourself and your family out of court seems so um, positive for people. And, you know, I think a lot of people look into them, but really what are the benefits of not going to court and um, using a mediation or collaborative process? So the biggest one that people focus on, um, and this applies for mediation more so than collaborative, is the cost savings. Um, You know, it's, it's a private process, which is also a benefit both of these two. So that what the judge is seeing and what's what's discussed in the courtroom is only what ends up in the actual separation agreement. All of the rest of the how did we get there, unless the judge needs an explanation of the separation agreement, do not ever go into the courtroom. But from a cost perspective, that's where I find most clients see like a huge benefit. Um, and mediation is typically a lot cheaper than either litigation or the collaborative process. The collaborative process can be a really similar cost if someone settles by like the pretrial conference or between a temporary orders hearing and a pretrial conference. It typically ends up being cheaper than going all the way to trial for those families that have to go all the way through a trial. But it's not the comparison between mediation and collaborative is it collaborative is a lot more expensive. Um, which is something as a collaborative community, we keep trying to address to make it more affordable for folks. But we haven't found a great solution because inherently when there's three professionals at every meeting and every pre-brief and debrief, it's more expensive than one professional at a mediation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the rest of the benefits are really, each family has a different reason they're choosing mediation or collaborative. And so the benefits are hard to articulate. They're intangible, I think. It is that like difference in how co-parenting can go. And I think sometimes that's hard for folks who have even been through mediation to realize because you only experience one process usually. And so you don't know what the outcome from the other process would be. So it's really, did it meet your goals when you were coming in? I always think one of the huge benefits of mediating or doing a collaborative divorce is that 
you are keeping control of, oh, of all course. the terms of your yes. divorce and yes. not leaving the most important issues in your life, yes. like your children and your finances to the whims of a stranger, because God, litigation is such a gamble. And so right. that in itself is just so empowering and such a, a, a tangible benefit. But I mean, you can't quantify that. Right. I, I am so glad you articulated that because that is so inherently obvious to me at this point in time yep. that I forgot to say it. Yes. And I yeah. feel like just my takeaway from what you were saying is absolutely the financial benefit of mediating and maybe collaborative too, slightly, but just the emotional benefit in some cases and the emotional cost of litigation. Yeah. Right. That it could save you a lot of emotional distress and energy, it sounds like, as well. Oh, absolutely. It's not without its own. And this is what I always tell people. Even the most amicable clients coming in are going to hit a hard spot. It's a very rare that you get all the way from start to finish of either of these two process choices without there being some real tension and hostility and tears and emotions. And I mean, it's a grief process, right? It's a family in distress, going through a crisis, trying to figure out their new footing. And that is inherently emotional, no matter what. But I do think that what this can save you is that amp up intention and hostility that comes and anxiety and all of those things that come from having to wait for someone else to decide things about your life. Yes. Thank you so much. You're yeah. very welcome. I think my last question, Jen, before we let you go, is a lot of our audience, they are dealing with high conflict, difficult exes. So, I mean, narcissistic, yep. coercive control. And it seems like you have such a broad, uh, you know, range of people that you're willing to mediate with. Um, if somebody is in this kind of a situation, do you think it's still worth it for them to look into? And what is different? What Like what safeguards do you have in place for them? Yeah. So again, like I, I have a broad definition of who I think is a good fit. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's worth it for folks who might think they might not be a good fit to at least talk to someone in who, who could fit that role of a mediator or talk to people, uh, uh, particularly a coach facilitator, um, to see if they think that collaborative could be a good fit. Because there's lots of safeguards, like just trying to think of all of them. Like part of my job as a mediator and of course, it's all of the team members' job in the collaborative process is to make sure that both parties are participating. So there's so many, even if someone is speaking a lot, there's so many tells that maybe they're not telling you everything that they're thinking or that they're holding back or that they're not feeling fully free to participate. Like it's a little bit harder on Zoom for some of these things but it can go back and forth. Um, but if, if their body language when their spouse starts talking just becomes like tense and shuts down, which happens in a lot of families where there's been a history of abuse or there is narcissism involved or there's gaslighting, control, any of those things, I'm watching for those things. I'm watching to see if people are actually relaxed and fully participating. And if they're not, I'm going to ask if I can meet with them separately if I'm the mediator. 
And I'm going to try to understand really what's going on. And I'm going to do a deeper dive into what is everyone's needs, interests, and goals. Do those needs include having an attorney present in the mediation? Do they need help finding their voice? Is there something else I can do? Is it better if I actually meet with them separately all the time? Um, there's something called shuttle mediation where, um, especially on Zoom, sometimes people are at the same meeting, but just in breakout rooms. Sometimes they're not even online at the same time. And I meet with one person and we go through a whole list of things. And then I meet with the other person and we go through a whole list of things. And then I'm going back and forth and figuring out where are they in agreement and where are they not. And sometimes that goes on for the whole process. Sometimes it's for a specific issue and then we're able to come back together. Um, in the collaborative process, that's where the team might break and say like, okay, something is off here. One of the clients isn't fully participating. One of them seems like they're not present mentally. Like there can be lots of different things that happen. Um, that you're watching out for. Uh, I I have so many different stories that are popping into my head as I think about this. Um, but the safeguards are really almost like what are the benefits? It mm. feels so intuitive to me now that I would just change the way the mediation is happening, that it's hard to articulate how many there are. But each mediation looks different. And if there are specific needs of those clients, if they're willing to participate and tell the mediator or the team in the collaborative process, this is, I think, going to be harder because X, Y, and Z. And you kind of change the process to fit the clients and blend things as needed. Like I have uh, one of my favorite stories about mediation is I have a mediation that started out with just me and the clients. And then so many things happened to this family. There was... Um, someone was relocating to another state, which is unusual to be able to get to a settlement in general and something like that. There was a cancer diagnosis. There were like so many different things happened. Um, and so at first one attorney came because one client was having trouble understanding what I was saying about alimony and said, I think it would be really helpful if I had my attorney here to like help me understand this in the moment. And after that meeting, the other client wanted their attorney to attend but one person was virtual and we ended up in that particular case. They also had, particularly because of the way their parenting plan was going to work because they were living in different states, they had so many child-related questions that we brought in a child expert. Um, and so I was the mediator. There were two collaboratively trained attorneys that happened to be representing them anyway, but they were both trained and collaborative. And we brought in another neutral and we pre-briefed and debriefed as needed, even though it was mediation. And so it's about really thinking about what are the needs of these clients and how can we meet their needs and being flexible as the practitioners to say, okay, this intellectual description of the process that we give doesn't fit these clients. What do we need to change? Yeah. Thank you. And does sound like I, as Divorce coach who specializes in narcissistic abuse and narcissistic abuse recovery in the past have really steered my clients away from mediation. But after talking to you, you've definitely changed my outlook. I'm so glad. I hope that happens for lots of your listeners too. And I think it can broadening process choice. It can be really liberating and it can make what feels like they're in this unique family situation where they're 
in particular turmoil because communication is hard and they feel they aren't being heard and things like that, it can be life-changing if it actually works. And I'm not saying it works for everybody by any means, but enough people that it's worth trying. It's great just to offer it as an option and just right. so they don't just immediately write it off and say, oh, that's not for me. Like we were talking about, it could be a very empowering process. So right. I'm glad that we're bringing this information to our audience. And oh, me too. Can't thank you enough. And I know a lot of people are going to want to know where to find you. And so can you tell us about that and about your own podcast? Yeah. So um, if you are interested, I'll start with the podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about conflict resolution generally, often focused on mediation and collaborative, but we've gone way far afield in what we've talked about on our podcast. You can listen at Mending Fences with um, it's myself and my co-host Patrice Brimner. And we publish not as regularly as Julie and Lisa, um, but we've been doing it for about two years. So there's a bunch of old episodes you can listen to. Um, And then where can you find me? I am at Skylark Law and Mediation. And my email is jhawthorne with an E, like uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, at skylarklaw.com. And our website has lots and lots of information about this. Um, And if people are interested in either process, both MCLC and MCFM have websites as well where there's, you know, just in case they are listening and like the process, but don't think I'd be a great fit. There's lots of other practitioners listed there as well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We appreciate the time you took to do this with us today. Yeah. I'm always happy to share about these two processes. Thank you. So that does it for today's show. Tune in with us again next week. Thanks so much for tuning into Divorce Detox with Lisa and Joe Lee. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us create more content, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Divorce Detox Pod. Please note that the information shared during the podcast is for informational purposes only and does not create any type of attorney-client or coach-client relationship. Please consult with a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for legal advice specific to your case.